0: Welcome to Grazed in America podcast. I'm your host, August Horstman. How's it going, August? Oh, pretty good, Court. How
1: are you? Doing great. Good, good. So my background is, um, I'm I'm right here in Park Valley, Utah. This is where I was born. Uh, my family's been here for a little over a hundred years. Uh, my dad, and my older brother, run my family's place, and uh, I worked for the Spackman family out here since uh, 2014. Um, I bought into the cow deal in uh, 2013, and really struggled to be honest, right from the get go, Mm -hmm. um, the, the cattle that I started out with were far from adapted to this environment. Yep. And you know, with, with no, uh, with no cushion and no buffer between me and and the real world, uh, it it was tough to to make any money, uh, running that type of cow in this environment.
0: Yeah. So what's your, what's your environment?
1: So we get about 11 inches of annual precipitation. Um, we're, we're high elevation as well. Uh, right here in the valley floor is about 5,600 feet above sea level. And then we do run cattle up to 10,000 feet above sea level.
0: Okay. And, and that's and, north central Utah?
1: Um, northwestern. Northwestern yeah, Utah. north Extreme northwestern Utah. Okay. Um, we're only about 50 miles from the Nevada border west of us. And then about 20 miles as the crow flies from the Idaho border north of us. So we're, we're extreme Northwestern. Okay. Um, we're desert environment. Um, I'm grazing a lot of improved desert ground. Um, you know, stuff that's the, that the brush has been taken off of and, uh, some of it was attempted to be dry farmed at some point And then they, they planted, uh, a lot of crested wheatgrass, intermediate wheatgrass, forage cocia. Um and then we still do graze a lot of annual grasses as well, uh, native native annual grasses, but uh, a big portion of this valley has been improved in some fashion to where, um, you know, we, we refer to them as improved grasses, they're just perennial grasses that are uh, a little earlier season type grasses, That you know, especially what we're grazing right now, and then uh, as we go into summer we're we're grazing a lot more native species up on upon the mountain and and some of the other places where we summer the cattle so mm-hmm. um,
0: so i've got quite a bit of quite a few questions just right off the bat roughly how many acres are you running on
1: so in the spring um I'm running on a an a lease and this is something that's a a little unique to me in this area I guess is I don't own any ground other than where my house sits. Uh Um, I'm running on straight lease ground uh, spring summer fall some some custom grazing in the fall time but uh, so in the spring I'm on about 5,000 acres I do take some of my dad's cows in on that. Uh, My summer lease uh, that I'll go to mid-May um, that will be, it's just shy of 3,000 acres, 2,900 and some odd. Um, but then what we winter on here, as well as we winter some cows on uh, Mal Peterson's place down in Nephi. Okay. Uh, you get into some extremely big and vast pastures on some of those BLM allotments. Um, our one allotment down here that we run in common, with several other people on about twenty five thousand acres. Okay. And so it, it there's some there's a lot of challenges um, dealing with some of that because there's some of those acres that are relatively uh, unproductive. You know, very very little to offer in some of these desert environments. Um, so we're just trying to do the most with what we got, you know, and and make the most of the usable acres that we have, I guess is a good way to put it.
0: Yeah. Um, and then the, some, most of those acreage, your BLM, uh, are they all other federal or state leases? Are they individuals or, um,
1: individuals, um, private, private leases is, is everything else that I'm on.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, aside from, uh, some BLM, some BLM
2: permits,
1: okay. um, sp- cattle who, like I say, I've helped manage for about the last 10 years. Uh, they do spend quite a bit of time on national forest service and Mm -hmm. that's pretty common in this area. Uh, There's a lot of people that spend the summer months on forest service and, and then they'll, they'll spend uh, the fall and winter on, on a lot of BLM is that's not uncommon for this area. There's most of these ranches um, have a significant amount of private acreage, Mm -hmm. but then I'm going to guess probably over over half of their grazing is is federal lands BLM and National Forest Service. Sounds good.
0: Um, I'd like to come back to come back to BLM in common and, and National Forest Service grazing a little bit later on, but we'll jump back into your background um, so you're running on quite a bit of lease ground and uh, running cows for people Correct and then you've got Absolutely. some cows here yourself um, we yep. we left off with uh, kind of just you starting out realizing that the cows that you were running um, weren't necessarily adapted to your environment so um, we'll just jump back in there
1: you bet so what I first began to realize was I was buying all my feed by the pound or by the AUM I didn't have any room for mistakes I didn't have any room for dead weight I didn't have any room for inefficient animals Mm -hmm. and a lot of these established ranches here in my area you know a lot of them produce all of their own hay Uh, you you know they they don't necessarily have an an AUM type overhead you know it, it doesn't necessarily matter whether they've got 200 cows in one pasture or 210 cows in one pasture if only 200 are being productive whereas I was leasing all this ground by the AUM. I quickly found out that that dead weight was absolutely killing me, you know, mm-hmm. completely stealing all the profit. And so I needed to minimize that risk as, as much as I could. And, and through that process, I realized that the cows that I was running were not very well acclimated to the forage that I had available. You know, I needed a lot of supplementation in order to keep them in good condition. Um, you know, they, they needed a lot more than what I wanted to give them. And it just got me thinking, you know, there's gotta be a better way. There's gotta be genetics that will work better in this environment.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, that's what kind of led me down the road that started, started me towards the beef master breed and thinking along those lines. Um, I had a good friend of mine, a a mentor, Doug Johnson, who, uh, raises registered beef master cattle here in Utah, who gave me a copy of Tom's book and that really kick started uh a lot of my thought process and and a lot of well I still follow Tom's philosophy uh, yeah. very intently still to this day but uh, back to back to the original problem i just knew that i had to change something i could not continue on the path that i was on because it was i was consistently losing money year in and year out trying to trying to run cows the way that i was trying to and the genetics that i was using Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I knew I had to change something. And so, uh, that's what led me down the path to, uh, I originally bought some, uh, beef master semen and used it on my heifers as just kind of a way to, to test it. I, I wasn't fully committed. I just wanted to dip my toe in the water and, and kind of see what I got. And I was extremely impressed with that first crop of calves, um, that I got. And, uh, actually that was the last set of cows that I AI'd because I bought Beefmaster Bulls and then have transitioned over to mainly beef master Bulls or my home-raised F1 uh, Beefmaster Sim Angus Cross Bulls since, and uh, I'm really happy with, with the results thus far.
0: Okay. Um, so, you started, I guess it sounds like maybe a Sim and Tall Sim Angus Cross herd was kind of your first, y- y- your yeah. foundation. Yes.
1: Yeah. A majority of the cows that I bought originally didn't have a lot of cementol influence, but uh, I was using a fair bit of Simmental, uh specifically in bulls, and I did buy some cementol influence influence females mm-hmm. um, just to try and get. I, I was focused on on a per animal basis. I wanted that per animal weaning weight, yeah. which wasn't wasn't doing me any favors, but it's what I felt like I had to do.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, within the system that I was in in order to be profitable. Yep. You know, I, I needed a bigger calf for the amount of inputs that I was having to put into those cows uh, for the breed up that I was having for the fallout percentage for the coal rate. I needed, I needed to have a big calf, which was not, the it was not the correct solution. It was a bandaid. Um, you know, it, it was a, a bandaid to help part of the problem, but it did not solve the, the big picture. And, I quickly found that out.
0: Yeah. And then, uh, so you added Beefmaster, um, and Tom is Tom Lasseter, correct?
1: That's right. That's okay. right. The founder of the breed. Okay. Yep, the founder of the breed. And, and Tom developed the breed out of necessity in South Texas uh, right around the time of the Depression. So okay. Tom's, Tom's father had a set of uh, Boss Indicus cows mm-hmm. and a set of Herford cows. Tom inherited when his dad passed away. The Boss Indicus cows were comprised of three Boss Indicus breeds, which are also the three breeds that were used um, to develop the Brahmin breed today. And so they were Nalor, Goose Rock, Cross cows.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, then he had a set of purebred herford cows as well. He used shorthorn bulls back over both of those herds. And then from that point forward, all he did was select the top performing bulls the top performing performing bulls stayed in the herd and were used back over all of the heifers or a vast majority of the heifers
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and so that he figures the approximate breakdown of the foundation herd is somewhere around fifty percent boss indicus, twenty five percent shorthorn twenty five percent herford okay um, and those those cattle have worked exceptionally well for us we specifically uh, specifically use only the foundation type beef master cattle
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, within the beef master breed there's there's kind of two two groups um, foundation beef masters and bbu type beef masters the cattle are all registered through the bbu as of today but there used to be two different breed associations okay and so the foundation uh, beef master cattle refer to the, the animals that are direct descendants of the foundation herd which of course is still intact today but then there's several other herds that have been developed um, using only uh, f- cattle out of the foundation herd KC um, Beefmasters in Texas will be the, the second oldest um, set of beef master cattle and they're they're also a closed herd now they haven't brought in any outside genetics for quite some time and so they're a, a secondary uh, foundation herd, if you will, that uh, is, is made up of cattle that are direct descendants of the foundation herd. Mm-hmm.
0: And was it? I was. I'm read or listened to Man Cattle and felt um, was, and I think they referred to Lassiter in that book. Is that correct? They did. Yes, okay. they did. And he, was he the one that talked about? selecting based off of animal performance and not based off of color?
1: Absolutely. Uh, one of his favorite uh, quotes to use was, hide color doesn't matter when the steak is on the platter.
2: Mm-hmm. And I,
1: I've always kind of got a kick out of that one. But he specifically selected four economically relevant traits only. He did not view the color of the hide as an economically relevant trait. Mm-hmm. And so it didn't matter, you know, in those early years and even to this day, it doesn't matter that the best, the best bull calves get kept and, and put back in the herd. There's been some mild selection based towards, um, you know, solid colors that they, they have inadvertently or, or maybe not. They have selected towards a solid colored animal, you know, solid red or, or solid dun yeah. light red. Um, but there's still there's still roan, paint, brindle cattle all throughout the the foundation herd. So uh, th- there's still a lot of diversity that way. And and the performance is all that mattered to Tom. And uh, you know his Tom's son Dale managed the herd uh, for a long time until he unfortunately had an untimely death, and and now Dale's son Alex is the uh is the manager of the foundation herd
0: okay um yeah i i think that's pretty important to note you know that that animals are being selected based off of performance whether you know other than just because they're solid color
1: absolutely um, absolutely it's made a huge difference for me some of some of my cattle within my herd that may have been cold for color in a different scenario have made a huge impact for me. And it's taught me a very valuable lesson about you somewhere. Tom was quoted to say, you can't afford not to keep the best bull regardless of color. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: I believe that that's a a very true statement. I've had several animals that at, at this point I can't, I can't afford not to use them, regardless of their color.
0: Yeah. So for somebody listening, I mean, what as far as using some a bull with color, or you know, trying to market market something with with some color on it, are you seeing issues, or is, do you just change your marketing of it?
1: So marketing and marketability are are big, um, are are big priorities of mine you know Mm -hmm. like regardless of the cattle's functional efficiency we got to make sure that we make them as marketable as possible um so there's something to take there's definitely something to take into consideration there so my personal um experience with that is the type of cattle that i'm raising i haven't seen any pushback you know that my cattle obviously don't fit the the black criteria that the market kind of demands, and so it depends on, I guess, what advantages your cattle bring to the table aside from that certified Angus beef premium that they might be able to attain from yep. being black hided. And so I think I think you touched on it. You you got to shift your your marketing options. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know that you sell a lot of beef directly to consumer. Mm-hmm. Uh, that direct-to-consumer beef is a fantastic option for any animals that are unmarketable due to color. Yeah. I've done quite a bit of that myself, and I, I find it to be a really great option. I think that there's a strong market um, for that direct-to-consumer beef yep. Um And so there's, there's always that possibility. But aside from that, there are still cattle feeders out there that are looking for cattle that are extremely feed-efficient. And they're less uh, bothered by color than a lot of people would l- lead you to believe, mm-hmm. um, you know. And so I think that's a priority, you know. I'm I'm not telling everybody to run out and and buy a brindle bull, and there'll be no repercussions because th- there could be, you know. There, there most definitely could be, especially if you market your cattle through the sale barn um, or, or you're selling, you know, light feeder type animals. There there will likely be some discount on some of those odd-colored animals. But that doesn't mean that you need to steer clear of them entirely. You might have to shift your focus a little bit. You might have to market a small group of animals that maybe don't have a desirable color pattern a different route, but there's always that option. I, I feel like the the benefit greatly outweighs the risk. The What I've gained uh, from using cattle that m- might not be the status quo for color I feel like definitely outweighs the the risk that it that it might bring to the table.
0: Yeah, I mean, even if uh, you know the cattle work in your environment, right? You have less uh, expenses into them and a smaller Absolutely. gross, you still might net higher.
1: On Absolutely, something
0: with some paint.
1: Absolutely, we. We did a little bit of a test um, within Stackman's herd when we first bought, brought Lassiter bulls into their cow herd, mm-hmm. and uh, they had a set of purebred Angus cows. And we split that set of cows pretty well right down the middle with no, no bearing one way or the other. I mean, it was more or less a gate cut straight down the middle of those cows. And we exposed the one set of cows to Angus bulls, and we exposed the other set of cows to Foundation Beefmaster bulls. And as soon as the bulls were pulled out, approximately forty-five days. Those cows went back together and they spent the remainder of the year, they spent the remainder of that year together and all of the next year together. And so there was no difference in environment or feed or anything like that. Mm -hmm. The only difference was the one set was exposed to Angus bulls, the other set was exposed to Beastmaster bulls. That following fall, we brought those calves in and we weighed them all individually and then we weighed them all as a group. On the steer side, Beefmaster sire steers outweighed the straight purebred Angus steers by 147 pounds. Per calf. Per calf. Holy cow. And, and so what we decided at that point is we can take an absolute beating when we market those cattle. And at the end of the day, we still have more dollars in our pocket from that weight. I had it figured at the time and I don't have the, that data in front of me. I, I should have figured it up before this, but it, it was something to the effect of we could take 37 cents less for them on sale day and still have more money in our pocket.
0: Holy cow. Through,
1: through the heterosis that we were gaining mm-hmm. um, by using those, those bulls back over an Angus based cow herd. And then you know, it, and in, oh, keep in, in some, in some places you might see that big of a, that big of a uh, downside in the price, Mm -hmm. you know, but definitely not everywhere. Yeah. You know, I I think in this area, uh, which this area is not very accepting to eared cattle, um, you know, at the sale barns, you're probably going to see at least a 10 to 15% uh, back on eared cattle uh, in comparison to their, equal quality English contemporaries. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But if, as long as you know that, then you know, you know, I mean, you still have the advantage by you knowing that I think.
1: A- ab- absolutely. Absolutely. So long as you know that going forward, um, you know, you're going to save, you're going to save a lot of money on feed with those boss indicus influence cattle. I know I have um, there, there are more feed efficient animal. feed efficient animals, Especially in these desert environments,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, I I like to tell people that you make more money the day that you preg check your cows than the day that you sell your calves, and I'm a firm believer of that. If you can increase your fertility and you can get another five to ten percent um, breed up when when you preg checking, that makes you more money than than your steers can,
2: mm-hmm. you know,
1: because that that can make a huge difference on a ranch, whether you have a bred female surplus or whether you're operating on a bred female deficit mm-hmm. that I think that's a, uh, well, fertility is the most economic, uh, relevant trait within a commercial cow herd. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. If you can't get them bred, nothing else matters.
0: Yep. Um, so
1: if you can utilize some genetics that you can drastically improve your breed up or shorten your breed up or, maintain the same uh, percentage in a shorter window that's making you money you might nobody's going to write you a check for it mm-hmm. but it's making you money if you know how to figure it
0: yeah so it's, out there you have a 45 day breeding window what uh is the per? you know what is your uh breed up percent
1: i've been i've been operating between a 85 and 90 percent mm-hmm. breed up and i'm pretty happy with that because i still have Um, I still have some purchased females in the cow herd. I still have some, some females in the cow herd that aren't exactly the ideal, um, genetics that I'm in search of. Mm -hmm. And so they're falling out, but I'm, I'm retaining a very high percentage in my heifer calves and they're, they're right there to take their place as soon as those cows fall out. Um, I'm a firm believer in the statement that pressure makes performance, Mm -hmm. uh, I don't want a 98% breed up. I know a lot of people are going to think that that's really funny. Um, mostly yeah, because I'm looking kickback. at it. Exactly. Uh, I'm looking at that from a a feedstock producer perspective because I want to identify the less fertile females mm-hmm. within every herd. There are females that are less than ideal. I want to identify them as quickly as possible. Yep. My yearling heifers only get 30 days with a bull. The reason for that being anything that doesn't breed as a yearling heifer in a 30-day window is more likely to fall out of the cow herd as a open two-year-old or an open three-year-old or an open four-year-old when it's a lot more costly time for them to be open. If, if they're going to be open, if they have the genetic predisposition to not be fertile under my management in this environment, I want them to fall out as quickly as possible. So I have the opportunity to sell them at a time in their life where they have increased in value rather than decreased in value. And I don't want them to leave an impact on my cow herd any longer than they have to.
0: Mm-hmm. And then so you're pre So bulls are in for 30 days. uh, And at this time there, are they on their summer range then? Which would be, they the, are. which would be the mountain. <laughs>
1: They are. So yep.
0: And so, how's and that so, work with getting bulls off of that?
1: It, it's a definitely a challenge, um, but a, a worthy one. Um, that short, controlled breeding season simplifies cattle breeding, it, it eliminates so many problems. It's funny how many problems that solves by like mm-hmm. pulling those burls out early and and only given those cows forty-five days, and the heifers thirty. Any outliers are automatically eliminated. Any cow that might milk too much, that might take, she might have to be in a in a higher BCS in order to breed. She's eliminated. Mm-hmm. You know, it it perfectly matches those cattle to your environment. If you can do your best to identify the best time to calve in your environment, the best time to breed up in your environment both of those cows. For a short breeding period, um, it eliminates so many problems. And that's part of Tom Lasseter's philosophy. That's nothing special to me. Um, that's just a part of Tom's philosophy that I've adopted and, and try to live by because I've, I've seen what it's done in my cow herd. The first couple of years that you do it, it's pretty nerve wracking. Yeah. Uh, you have a higher coal rate the first couple of years. That's all there is to it. But if you can get over that hump, um, then it, it makes a drastic difference. Um, I mentioned the the Casey herd of Beefmaster cattle um, down in Albany, Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, they've, they've continually shortened their breeding season to where their mature cows only get 30 days with the bulls now. And what they're finding is they can continually shorten that season, and it has very little impact on their breed-up percentage, just for the fact that they have cows that are so acclimated and so adapted to their environment they only need one cycle with the bulls and and that's all that they need um yeah during the during the drought in that area 2007-2008 um i believe is the first time that they shortened their breeding season from 40 days to 30 days and they still had a, a phenomenal breed up even during that drought they were specifically trying to trying to identify the bottom end of those cows but Mm -hmm. within that close herd. They, they really isolated those genetics that work great in that environment. And they've been able to continually pressure those cattle into more and more performance.
0: Yeah. That's one thing I've kind of seen, uh, from selecting on fertility when you pull the inputs and then you select based off of fertility that you mean you call based off of body condition score you call you know all the ones that don't breed long hair body condition score bad feet you know they just all just absolutely start absolute. falling out
1: they do they, they identify themselves very quickly um you know and I, I tell people that quite a bit i use that short breeding season to identify the cows that are going to fall out at a later time yeah and and that's the that's how i view it you know if you were just if you gave them 90 days to breed, those cows would eventually fall out. I just want them to fall out faster. Yep. I, want them, I want them to leave the herd quicker. I want them to have fewer daughters in the herd when they leave or no daughters in the herd when they leave. I don't want to run the risk of keeping a herd bull out of them. Yep. If they're not going to work in this system, I want them gone as quickly as possible.
0: Yep, and so there's going to be people that say, "Well, I'm I might do it in 45 days, right? I my breeding season season's 45 days, but your, mm-hmm. you, you, but w- what's different is your your cows aren't being supplemented; they're still doing it in 45 days or it, in 30 exactly. days. And then, how are uh, your replacement females treated?
1: Replacement tr- females are treated as much like the cows as I possibly can. Um, I had the opportunity to have them winter right alongside their mothers mm. this year um, on a custom grazing deal, and it's it was fantastic. I'm very happy with it. Those heifers are not nearly as big as a lot of producers would like them to be, but I know that the heifers that do breed as a result of spending the winter with their mothers, mm-hmm. they're going to be set up to be a lot more successful down there as two-year-olds. And it's going to set them on the right track. That's just one more way that I can pressure those heifers and make them work right alongside their mothers. Um, I I don't like I don't like the term first calf heifer. Or even in this even in this area, I hear second calf heifer. You know, there's a lot of people that will run their two year old separate from their cows, and they'll run their three year old separate from their cows.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I expect them to be a cow from the day that they're bred. I want them to enter the cow herd as a bred female and they're part of the cow herd. I don't want to give them any special treatment whatsoever. I want them to go into that cow herd and be part of that cow herd until they're too old to be part of that cow herd. And that's my goal. Yeah. Go
0: ahead. Okay. So to, so to clarify, so calf's born, right? Runs with its mom, runs up on the mountain, comes down, Winters with its mom, then you're on the you're in spring. That's a yearling heifer. Then the heifer gets split from the cow when they go up to the mountain, and the heifer has is with bulls for thirty days. Cows are with bulls for forty five days. Is that at the same time, or is heifers and cows?
1: So I, I I'm actually changing that a little bit. Um, it has been at the same time, and I had pulled bulls out earlier. But after this winter, it's got me, uh, I'm going to adopt a, a little different, a little different management there that was actually, uh, brought to me by a, a good friend of mine, a, a mentor, um, that lives just always, I call him a neighbor, but he's actually 60 miles away, uh, Sunny Mum. So Sunny has done great things in, in changing his cow herd over uh, into more adapted. Mm-hmm. Uh, adapted herd, and he's done a fantastic job. But Sonny started exposing his heifers after his cows. You know, heifers have been known to calve a little early on occasion, uh, and maybe come a little earlier uh, than you would like them to. And in this environment, that's a big deal, especially in a winter like this. Um, I. I try to steer clear of short gestation genetics. I don't like them. I think those calves are born kind of compromised. I want cattle that are full gestation when they're born. I want calving through genetics rather than gestational length. Mm-hmm. But heifers can come 10 days early. Um, I'm, I'm trying to maximize my calving window by calving as early as I possibly can without having to deal with winter weather. Um, this year... We had kind of an abnormal year, but I want to plan for the extremes and hope for the best. So we had too much winter weather when my heifers started calving this year. Um, It was a little too labor intensive. I had a few too many losses. So I'm going to actually hold my heifers out of the breeding groups until June 15th. If I put my bulls in with my cows June 1st, I'm going to hold those heifers out until June 15th then I'm going to introduce the heifers into those breeding groups and then the bulls will all be pulled out the same day. So the heifers will only get 30 days with the bulls, uh, but they'll actually start just a little while after the cows in an effort to ensure that those heifers are calving in opportune weather.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Okay. And then, uh,
0: what, for the people that are going to say, well, don't the heifers need more time to repair?
1: So, I I've heard the same thing, and, and that's the, the beauty of uh, the beauty of the short breeding season. So, you'll open up these beef magazines, and you'll hear quite a few things about uh, postpartum non estrus You know, and in a lot of heifers, that's a real problem. You know, there's there's some postpartum non estrus there, no doubt. But in my system, those heifers, even if they bred the last 30 days of the breeding season, that would mean they calved from approximately April 1st to May 1st. Mm -hmm. They will, the very last heifer that calves, that calf will be born on May 1st. That calf will be 30 days old before I turn bulls out with a mature cow herd
2: June
1: 1st and that's all of the recovery that I expect the heifer to need if they need more than that that's probably a female that I don't want I have a lot of I have a lot of heifers within my herd that are calving with a 365 day interval you know they they calve as a two-year-old they're calving exactly a year later as a three-year-old um, that's what I'm after, you know, and, and there may be a small percentage of those heifers that do have a longer postpartum non-estrus than I would like them to have, but that's fine. I can put the pressure on them. They can come in open. They can leave. Yeah. I can, I can focus on the genetics that work. That's, that's my biggest, highest priority. I want to put my focus on the cattle that are showing me that they can do it. Um, you know, there's a lot of focus in this industry it's put on how do I make that heifer profitable that heifer that needs more time to heal how do I make her profitable I'm not concerned by that heifer I just assume that heifer leaves as a two year old and I don't have to worry about her or her daughter or her granddaughter I, I want her to leave the first year possible mm-hmm.
0: Um, and what's your heifer let's see your heifer breeding percent then your breed back from after their first calf
1: so after their first calf they're they're my highest risk group obviously Yep. um as they are in most herds um last year i want to say they were right around 83 mm-hmm. percent
2: um
1: which is a number that i'm willing to live with especially as much as i'm as much as i'm trying to turn over my genetics yeah um i'm i'm increasing with every generation and percentage with every generation and that's a very high priority to me. Um I I bought a set of bred heifers in 2014 and 50% of those heifers were open uh, after they raised their first calf. Yeah. Uh, that was a big wake up call to me um to to show me that there's not a lot of genetics out there that can work in this environment um, in this setting uh, under my management and so That's my highest priority. So long as I'm increasing every generation, that's that's my goal. If I can have a higher percentage of those two-year-olds bred to the point where I might have to apply some more pressure later on down the road, that's my goal. But so long as I can be in that 80 to 85, uh, even up to 90%, I'm I'm happy with those numbers um, just for the fact that I know that some cattle are falling out but those cattle that are falling out are cattle that would have either created more cattle with the genetic predisposition to fall out. And and I want to eliminate those genetics as quickly as possible.
0: Yeah. Cool. Um, I'm pretty curious about uh, like your summering on the, on the mountain in two groups. So is it like big pasture, big pastures or what, what does that look like? Or is it, all one you know is it all just there's
1: there's division pastures so the last several years i've actually been breeding in three different breeding groups okay and so i have cows that do not have any beef master influence those cows are being bred back to purebred beef master bulls in a multi-sire situation mm-hmm. i also have uh 50 percent beef master cows that are be- being bred back to 50% beef master bulls. Mm-hmm. And then I do have some purebred beef master cows that are being bred back to same Angus bulls. Okay. And so I've been breeding in three separate groups. And so every calf that's born is 50% beef master.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so moving forward, that group continues to get larger. Um, the, the purebred beef master females are females that I bought. I'm not raising any purebreds. And so that group gets smaller mm-hmm. every year and the old original Sam Angus type cows that don't have any beef master influence, that group is getting smaller every year, but to maintain the percentage that I've found to work well in my environment, I've been breeding in three separate groups. So large pastures, um, my main, my main summering, uh, area There's about uh, about a thousand acres per pasture. One water source is where they would is where they would stand where they would stand the majority of the breeding season. Mm -hmm. Um, Spackman's cattle uh, that I take care of out here in Park Valley, uh, those cattle are going to be in even bigger pastures, live water that intersects those pastures, but uh, those mountain pastures, a lot of them were using uh natural uh i, I don 't know the the right way to word this here uh natural boundaries rather than fences okay so rock cliffs yep uh, canyons stuff like that, along with some fence mm-hmm. you know and so some of those pastures are are absolutely enormous um, in comparison to what a lot of people are used to seeing. Uh, and it takes, it takes a, a bull with a lot of drive to keep up with those cattle, check multiple water sources for cycling cows and, and walk on rocks the whole time to do it. Yeah. And we've been using Beefmaster bulls in Sackman's cow herd since 2017. And we found that they do as well on that mountain during the breeding season as any breed of bull that we've used thus far. Uh, those bulls are extremely aggressive breeders. Um, I'm not sure how familiar you are with Tom Lasseter's philosophy and the way that they breed all of those cattle in multi-sire groups, um, but, but the purpose of that is to specifically select for those bulls that are extremely aggressive breeders, those bulls with a very high libido Mm-hmm. bulls that have a lot of drive um, those bulls within the foundation herd that have a lot of drive breed more cows sire more calves and where that's a closed herd leave more leave more of a genetic footprint behind in that cow herd yeah. and we we found that even though a lot of those foundation beefmaster bulls are very nature are very gentle by nature they're extremely aggressive breeders. They take that job very seriously. And when you're exposing a large group of cows in a multi-sire group in big pastures, we've found that to be extremely important to us. Mm -hmm. Um, Bulls with low libido, it turned out they lay around the water source. They don't, they don't have a lot of interest to hike up a hill and stand on a rock to go find a cycling cow that, that drive, um, and that aggressiveness during the breeding season is extremely important in this area.
0: Yeah. Cause they're just traveling.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. The, the, the sheer distance that they need to travel, um, you know, and, and some, all of the bulls might get isolated on wa- one water source. And if they don't, if they don't have the drive to go check that other water source, Uh, you know, on a daily basis, on a every other day basis, they're going to miss a cycling cow. Mm -hmm. And they just, that's just the sheer truth of it all. It's It's a huge problem and there's a lot of breeds that are not that well suited for that type of situation, especially when you're asking them to breed all of the cows in a 45 day window that puts that much more pressure on them but by using genetics from a cow herd that has had that pressure placed on them for a lot of generations uh, that makes a huge difference
0: yeah yeah that's pretty crazy um something i don't i have not thought about uh and i don't know if you know some seed stock producers maybe in missouri or kind of in the central part of the country have thought about that just because that's completely outside of our, uh, our realm. So
1: absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, every environment has its own unique challenges, you know, and that's what I tell people all the time. You are dealing with challenges that I don't have to, and vice versa. And and that's where truly adapted genetics come into play. Yeah. And, And that's where we all have to pressure our own cowherd to adapt to our environment just to match our own unique circumstances and challenges yeah so i'm kind of curious
0: truly adapted genetics and then bringing um bulls out of texas or like out of lassiter's herd what made you choose choose them just his philosophies and then you just just sent, you know, sent it, or did you start with, uh, Doug, what was it? Doug Johnson.
1: Doug Johnson. Yeah. Okay. So and I you- actually, I, I actually started with Lassiter cattle, but then i used a lot of Doug's genetics as well. Okay. Um, Doug's cattle are straight foundation. And so they're heavy, heavily Lassiter influenced pretty well straight Lassiter. Doug has used some casey bulls, um, along with it, which are also straight foundation. But, uh, 100% foundation, either Lasseter or Casey influence, uh, Lassiters were based out of Colorado when I first started buying bulls from them.
0: Okay. So that and, was pretty and, close then, or close. Yeah.
1: And their, their environment was fairly similar to ours, a uh, little more rainfall, uh, but they also were putting a little more pressure on their cows. And, and so that definitely made a difference for me. Um, their cattle don't see a lot of altitude and so we had a little bit of skepticism towards whether those cattle uh, would handle the altitude that we have to deal with here as well as they have they've done a fantastic job of that uh, especially within Spackman's cow herd that goes up to 10,000 feet in an elevation we deal with a lot of brisket disease um, so that is pulmonary heart failure more or less the the cattle their heart has a a weakness um to where you get them up to that elevation they start to develop water or fluid excuse me fluid in their chest cavity
2: mm-hmm.
1: it pools up around their brisket they get a brisket they have a fatal heart attack and they die yep um and there's a lot of a lot of angus cattle and other english or continental breeds that uh, do not perform very well at high altitude. Um, we've taken these purebred Beefmaster cattle right up to 10,000 feet. Both the purebreds and the half-bloods perform as well at 10,000 feet as any, as any breed we have up there currently. Mm-hmm. Um, prior to using Beefmaster bulls, backmans used purebred Angus bulls on their heifers and that was our highest risk group at elevations. Those purebred Angus-sired calves at elevations had all sorts of problems, but brisket disease, high altitude sickness was was a big part of it and had a lot of losses associated with that. Um, Now where we use all purebred beef master bulls, back over their angus-based females especially the the first calf heifers the, the two-year-olds um those those that is our lowest risk group of calves mm-hmm. that we take up on that mountain now that the beef master cattle where they have been so rigorous rigorously uh pressured for just sheer doability and survivability uh their immune systems are really strong. Uh, they're evidently their their hearts must be really strong because those cattle do really well at altitude.
0: Cool, that's awesome.
1: Um, so, back to your question, I, I was a little skeptical of you know bringing in outside genetics. Yep. What I what I found when I really got looking August, there's there's never been a breed developed for the Intermountain West, the Great ba- the Great Basin out here. There's never been a specific breed developed out here in this area. We're just dealing with breeds that have been, been developed elsewhere. You know, we're bringing in Boss Indicus Influence breeds that were developed in Texas mm-hmm. or English or European breeds. Um, you know, there's been a few breeds developed in Arizona that work to some degree in this area, but not exactly to the degree that I was hoping for. And so that was more or less my hope was uh, to to develop a set of cows that were specifically made for this region.
0: Mm-hmm. So that's what your goal is. And is that what Faith Cross Livestock is then?
1: Absolutely. Yep, absolutely. So we actually have a name picked out for the breed of cattle that we're trying to develop.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it's in the process of being trademarked. And so I, I'm not going to share it. Maybe on, the, maybe on the next time. But I do, I do have a, a name picked out uh, for the breed of cattle that we're hoping to develop. Um, one of my biggest goals is to have a, a USDA-recognized breed uh, that I've developed here for the Intermountain West sometime before I die.
0: Yep. Cool. Um well, yeah, we'll save that for, we can do that, Tez, like you're coming out uh, episode there we with go. your name.
1: Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. I I hope, uh, I've needed some help with the whole trademarking process and so I, I hope it's, uh, I hope it's on the downhill side.
0: Yeah, yeah, I looked into that for a few things of mine and it was a, <laughs> a big Pro- or just way more trouble, I think.
1: Than- <laughs> it, it, it is. It, it's a big undertaking, but I I felt like I had to do it. Yep. Um. In order in order to protect that name. So. Yeah. Uh, I that.
0: Just saw somebody trademarked. Uh. It was a Machona any cross. It was like a Coriona or something, and uh-huh. it had a, It had. It was trademarked or something.
1: <laughs> it, it. It's a difficult process, but I think well worth well worth doing. No doubt about it.
0: Yeah, so when, like, trying to pick, you know, looking at cattle and trying to decide what bulls you're going to keep back, what are what are you uh, looking at there, and where did you kind of learn or develop some of the things you look for?
1: So I, I'm a big fan of Johan Um I think Johan puts it into words as good as anybody does. Um, I'm not sure that it's exactly his phrase originally, but he talks about eight pounds of sugar in a five pound sack quite Mm -hmm. a bit. Yep. Um, in these desert environments, that's huge for me. I need that full bodied appearance. I need those cattle that are consistently eight pounds of sugar in a five pound sack. Um, that doesn't mean that I like fat cattle or overly fat cattle by any means. I'm perfectly fine with them being in their work clothes. Yep. um they need to have that full bodied appearance they need to have that that look at eight pounds of sugar in a five pound sack um I'm also big on ratios in herd ratios um i definitely i definitely uh like to measure all those bull calves at birth at weaning um just to ensure that I'm selecting towards economically relevant traits um mm-hmm. I don't want. I don't want to ever select solely based on eye appeal. Um, you know, there's gotta be some economically relevant traits there along with it. Um, I'm, I'm starting the process of weighing all of my cows, both in the spring, shortly after calving and at weaning. So I can get a firmer grasp on, uh, individual efficiency within my cows as far as, which cow is, is leaning a higher percentage of her body weight on an annual basis, but also which cow is maintaining her condition the best while doing that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, I think that that's, that can be kind of a tricky situation. Um, there's definitely cattle that can wean, wean a very high percentage of their body weight, but they sacrifice a lot of Fat, they sacrifice uh, body condition to do it, and that's not exactly a a, a great um, a great trait that I'm that I'm willing to lean towards. Just mm-hmm. for the fact that I I'm a firm believer that you can have your cake and eat it too with breeding cattle. There's cattle out there that can maintain their body condition very well while still Uh, weaning a high percentage of their body weight yeah and that's that's my focus is I'm I'm I want to identify identify those females within my herd that can do that that I just mentioned and then replicate those females as quickly as possible uh, you know through the use of their sons. mostly Um, a lot of people would much rather have heifers out of their very best cows Uh, I would much rather have bulls out of my very best cows because I can leave a bigger footprint genetically in my cow herd quicker uh, through the use of a son than I can through the use of a daughter yeah and you want to explain that absolutely so uh, if I have a female that I've I've identified as to be one of my top performing females um, if I keep a son of hers I could have potentially 30, uh, grandsons, granddaughters of that cow, uh, when that son's a two year old. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas if I kept a daughter out of that cow, which I would anyways, right. You know, but the the son does me more good because, uh, that, that daughter that I would keep would only give me one grandson or granddaughter of that cow by the time that daughter's a two year old. Yeah. So, Uh, Tom Lasseter refers to the genetic crank quite a bit in his book. I'm a firm believer in the genetic crank Uh, using those yearling bulls back over the yearling heifers, especially those uh, yearling bulls that are out of cows that you want to replicate as quickly as possible is a way to turn the genetic crank, turn those genetics over even that much faster so that's that's a big goal of mine is turn that genetic crank and, and keep keep turning over those genetics as quickly as I possibly can in order to uh, replace a higher percentage of the cow herd with adapted genetics as quickly as possible. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, And then do you, do you worry much about, I guess, line breeding or do you try to promote some of it? Um, So,
1: um, i I'm, i haven 't been doing any DNA testing, you know as far as what sires what yep. and part of that is due to part of tom Lasseter's philosophy. I do have concerns about inbreeding line breeding definitely doesn't concern me, but i do I do have some concerns um, a lot less concerns than I used to um, you know you look at you look at cow herds like Casey's or like Lassiter's that have been closed herds for so long, and those cattle continue to thrive um they're a little bit genetically depressed is a good term that i heard that was uh used talking about lasseter cattle specifically um their their level of inbreeding holds back their own personal individual performance Mm
2: -hmm.
1: but that does not affect the commercial producer at all what that what that's doing is creating an animal that that is more pure, more consistent um and although that animal might suffer uh from a certain level of inbreeding when you outcross that animal to an unrelated an unrelated mate, you get even more heterosis than you would out of a out of an animal that is not line bred, and I found that out personally with the later cattle The develop the degree of heterosis that you get. Um, through those very linebred, inbred type genetics, the level of heterosis that you get is out of this world. It's it's really something to behold.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I do have some concerns there. Um, I want to use as many of my home raised bulls as possible, um, especially out of cows that have proven to me that they fit my management system and fit my environment. Um, But I also want to introduce some new genetics where I can um, just to keep enough diversity that if I ever do close this herd sometime down the road, I have enough diversity within the herd to do so.
0: Yeah. I was reading a post on Facebook and somebody said, mentioned something uh, about keeping a son from a, you know, it was keeping, it was in reference to keeping a calf crop, right? And keeping the best bull calf and breeding it to all of his half sisters, Mm -hmm. um, and about how that will, I don't not clean up, but, um, you know, uniform, you know, make that next set of calves, the most uniform set. Do you have any experience with that?
1: I do. I do. I I've used, like I say, I don't DNA test. them, so I don't know what is fired by what, um, I know cow families, -hmm. Um just because I do track that within my within my herd, but I don't track anything on the top side. But where I run everything in multiple sire groups, um, undoubtedly every year I am breeding several yearling bulls back to their half sisters sired Mm -hmm. by the same bull. And then a lot of those would actually share share some uh share something on their mother's side as well. But with every passing generation I gain more consistency, and I hear a lot of people talk about, well, you know, inbreeding might cause genetic defects, Um, but talking with a geneticist here a couple years ago, he said inbreeding does not cause genetic defects, it multiplies genetic defects, so if there's no genetic defects present, it will never make any genetic defects, it will only multiply them, And so if you're very cautious about making sure to never use any cattle with genetic defects, uh, inbreeding in and of itself will not create those defects. It will only multiply them. And so that's a a, a big, um, a big priority of mine is to make sure that I'm steering clear of any undesirable trait or defect, uh, just to ensure that it doesn't have the opportunity to multiply.
0: Yeah. Huh, that's interesting. I did not know that
1: yeah, that's how it was explained to me is that uh, in and of itself it will not inbreeding will not create uh, will not create genetic defects, it will only multiply them and that made good sense to me because uh, like within, within the Lasseter herd, uh you know those cattle are absolutely not riddled with genetic defects by any way, shape, or form, and they're probably about as inbred as you could possibly get something. Yeah. Um, you know, for being a close herd for, uh, 90, 90, plus years, uh, they're about as inbred as you could about get anything. And those cattle are, are far from riddled with genetic defects. Every once in a while, they, they will get an animal that, uh, that has what they call a rye nose, where it's a nose that kind of comes off to one side a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, uh, those animals are never kept they may get one out of several hundred every few years, you know? And so that's, that's probably fewer genetic defects than are found in most commercial herds.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, that's pretty cool. That's interesting. That's, uh, yeah, I'm glad I've been looking for somebody to be able to answer, answer that. I appreciate that.
1: You bet. That's a big priority of mine is to just ensure that moving forward, um, I don't ever give any any less desirable trait an opportunity to multiply because the way that I am turning that genetic crank, if I'm making the wrong decisions, they can multiply just as fast as if I'm making the right ones. Yep. And so I, that's where I want to start uh, collecting a little more data. I want to start, uh, you know, putting a little more pressure in certain areas where I can just to ensure that I'm moving in the right direction because I'm, I'm setting myself up for failure as much as I am for success. If I'm, if I'm not measuring absolutely everything that I possibly can.
0: Yeah. And, uh, with, you know, kind of making your own breed, I mean, will that be something that's registerable with, with papers and and all that kind of stuff?
1: So I'm not entirely sure of the USDA, uh, process as far as the USDA recognition of a new breed. Um, to be quite honest with you, because there's n- no information out there available. I've I've looked for it about everywhere that I can. I've even tried to talk with certain people within the USDA to to see what their requirements would be, and nobody can really give me a straight answer as far as what I have to have in order to be recognized. Um, I, it's more or less you have to place the breed in front of them and they get to determine whether they will recognize it as a breed. Um, but At that time, once I would be able to accomplish USDA recognition, uh, that would give me the availability to create a uh, a registration uh, organization where uh, sometime in the near future I'm going to start pedigreeing everything just so I have uh, that information on hand for bold customers moving forward, you know, especially – Bull customers that have been buying my genetics for several years now, um, could, could look at their bulls, you know, pedigrees alongside one another and, and determine if a certain line is is working better for them or, or suits their needs a little better. But yeah, that, that's something that I definitely, definitely hope that within my lifetime, I can, I can make a, a registerable animal. Cool. Um,
0: so you got current bull customers. What are they? Using your bulls on uh,
1: mostly English cross cows. Um, some of them have some boss indicus influence in them, but but very little. Uh, I'm getting back really great reports on what my bulls are doing for them. Uh, I got a lot of repeat customers. Uh, all of my bulls this year, with the exception of a couple of two year olds that I held over, all went to repeat customers. Um, which is great. Obviously, I want new customers every chance I get, but I I love the fact that I'm sending bulls in the ranches and and they're working well for them and and they want to keep buying. Yeah. Um, and so most of my customers are using these half beefmaster bulls back over cows that don't have any uh, box indicus influence or beefmaster influence for that matter uh, with with the hope or the the thought that. They can use these half-blood bulls. They can create quarter Beefmaster calves that are extremely marketable, even in like a sale barn setting in this area. The, the quarter Beefmaster, there's enough Beefmaster influence there to harness some of the benefits of the Beefmaster breed, but phenotypically they don't resemble uh, the Beefmasters very much. They have some breed characteristics, but uh, for the most part, they're they fit right in with a... With a continental English cross type that markets very well in this area, mm-hmm. uh, but but the the long term goal there is they can use these bulls forever going forward and never end up with more than fifty percent beef master. There are a lot of ranches in this area that have an appreciation for Bos indicus influence females, but they don't know how to make them in a way that they won't end up with a higher percentage than what they're after. Uh, there's a lot of people that would love a 50%, uh, beef master female, but they don't want a three quarter and they definitely don't want a three quarter beef master steer And they definitely don't want a seven, eight beef master steer to try and market in this area yeah. where the buyers are a little hard on the eared cattle. And so that's been my goal. And originally it was, it was for purely selfish reasons. I needed those half-blood bulls because it simplified my breeding program. I wanted to maintain a 50% beef master within my cow herd.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Once I had 50% beef master females, the only thing that made sense to me was to develop 50% beef master bulls alongside them to maintain what I felt to be the perfect uh, percentage of beef master in those cows without having to deal with... Uh, Either quarter bloods or three quarter bloods, and, and then trying to figure out where they fit. Um, the, the half bloods, kind of the sweet spot for me, and so that's where I've I've placed all my focus is to to try and replicate those. Uh, and I feel like that's been the every breed that's been developed has been out of necessity. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's been by someone who feels like that's what they have to do in order to remain profitable, yeah. and that's been my driving factor as well Uh, everything that i've done up to this point as a a result of what i feel like i've had to do to remain profitable from a commercial standpoint and i never want to lose sight of that going forward um you know obviously the more bulls that i sell or the, the more that i shift towards the seed stock side of things uh the the more animals i'm selling by the head instead of by the pound I see that that's a very slippery slope for a lot of seed stock producers because they lose sight of a lot of economically irrelevant traits.
2: Yeah. And
1: I, that's an extremely high priority of mine is to keep the commercial mindset while simultaneously raising seed stock animals. Because if I'm not as hard or harder on my cattle uh, than the average commercial producer, then I'm, I'm doing them a disservice. Uh, by selling them genetics, I have to apply more pressure on my animals than the commercial cattlemen would in order to be able to sell them genetics that have value. Um, I think that there's a lot of emphasis in the seed stock world that's put on price. You know, what can I sell this animal for? What's it worth? What's what's its price? Uh, my focus is value. I want to create an animal. That I can pass on to the the commercial cow calf man that has value. Yes, they're going to give me a a price for that animal that is above commercial price, but I want the benefits that they reap to be ten times what what that increase in price is what they're paying for. Yeah, uh, I feel like I have to create that animal with value.
0: Yep, yeah, that's that's good. That's really good because I think you know, it can get lost with, uh, you know, when prices are low to cut a bull that, you know, would make you three grand maybe in the spring and take a thousand bucks in the fall for them, you know.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And and that's why I never want to get to the point where I, I list myself as completely seed stock. I want to sell steers every year. I want that to be part of my of my plan moving forward i don't want to ever be naive enough to believe that a high percentage of my animals are seed stock worthy i want to continue moving forward full on knowing that i'm going to cut a large percentage of my bull calves and sell steers just for that simple reason i don't ever want to put myself i have to cut some calves in order to in order to be able to market my calves in semi-lot loads. And and so I like that pressure on myself. Mm -hmm. I have to continually look for calves to cut, um, whether it's in May when I brand or whether it's throughout the summer, I'll I'll get everything in. Um, In August when I preg check, I ultrasound preg check as early as I possibly can. And that still gives me the, the ability to uh, band any of those bull calves that I'm not happy with prior to weaning. Mm -hmm. I found that to be a lot more opportune time to do that while they're still on their mother's. Um, You know, they're lighter, the weather's a little more accommodating and then they're not dealing with castration along with weaning at the same time.
0: Yeah. Yep. That was something I did this year. We pregged early because we were pretty dry. So, we, we banned Absolutely. it at that time, and then they spent uh, another two months on their mom before we weaned and yeah. went right into strip grazing.
1: It, it's worked fantastic for me. I, I would recommend it to anybody, especially seed stock producers. You know, a lot of times I've seen it on a firsthand basis dealing with some seed stock producers. You get to October or November and you have a spring-born bull calf. And by that time, they're showing a lot of bull characteristics. Regardless of their quality, um, their value has been decreased, even if you wean them, just because they have some bull-like characteristics.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so they're a little more likely to get left a bull, and then a little more likely to get marketed as a bull, whereas if you have the opportunity to, to ban those calves earlier, it uh, it eliminates that part of the problem that uh, might make for a conflict a little later on
0: yeah yep um i've got uh one thing circled here about circling back to uh, blm and in common and the national forest service i don't know if you got some time you want to tackle that i
1: do
0: yeah absolutely okay so when so, you mentioned you run on BLM in common. So, that means if I'm understanding it, correct me, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. So, you run on a lease with other producers, correct? Yep. So, how do you manage that?
1: So, where I do run on BLM would be in the winter. Um, okay. So, it would be a December 1st turnout to uh, the 1st of February. And so it, it's winter grazing, native grasses, um, those cattle more or less, there's no way to supplement your individual cattle. We don't supplement those cattle as a group. And so that's a big driving factor of making a uh, an adapted animal. Uh, a lot of the... Thought process of a of a lot of producers that run on similar uh, allotments is we got to have those cattle fat enough that when they get there they can lose weight for two months and they'll still be in an acceptable uh, body condition when we bring them back. My goal is I can take those cattle there in any condition; they're going to maintain their body condition or gain their body condition while they're out there mm-hmm. um, grazing grazing that native grass. And so it, it's a little tricky because when things go wrong, you can't you can't get yourself out of a pinch in a hurry. But that's a very common problem in this area. I run on a relatively low percent percentage of federal ground in comparison to a lot of the producers out here. Um, there's a lot of producers out here that run in common with other producers year-round. Uh, Those cattle might be on private for 30 days. Mm-hmm. Or sixty days, and then then the the rest of the year they 're running on on uh on federal lands and so there's there 's definitely some challenges mm-hmm. um, those grazing permits are very expensive to buy, but the annual fees are very low, so a lot of these ranches that have owned them for a long time that 's a great way for them to keep their uh keep their inputs very low uh like i say that the annual grazing fees are are pretty minimal um but they do have their own set of challenges uh as most as with most government agencies they can be tricky to deal with Mm -hmm. uh, on occasion but for the most part they're they're pretty reasonable to deal with um especially in this area if you if you have a desire to take care of the take care of the land take care of the grass um and try to leave it better than you found it they're they're pretty easy to uh, pretty easy to deal with if you're of the mindset that you want to uh just mine whatever grass is off of it and leave they can they can be problematic but uh they're they're doing what they can to uh ensure the the productiveness of that land moving forward, which is, is their job. So you can't blame them for wanting to do it. Yeah. One of my, uh,
0: I looked into BLM and grazing, you know, different forest service stuff a couple of years ago. And one thing that, uh, I may have misunderstood was, you know, when you're, let's say you have like an, a grazing allotment for 2000 stalker cattle. Right. And, if you go into a a year where you know with the mindset you know if we if it's just a normal growing year and financially you're at the point where you could take you know fifteen hundred stocker cattle instead of the two thousand right and maybe focus on doing some rest and some forage improvement through rest, yep yeah. um that your your permit would get you know. Pulled or flagged for not having the total, total required amount of cattle on there being the two thousand. Is that right, or is that did I have that
1: wrong? No, there's some merit to that. So they have what they consider non-use. So if you have a forest permit, you have to use that permit two out of every three years for. It, you you run the risk of going into what they consider non-use. Now, that throws up a red flag if you're continuing to not use it. It throws up a red flag because that one that makes them wonder why why is there not the feed there that it was allotted for at one point. Why why is our grass situation going downhill? Uh, why are we losing volume? Why are we losing certain species? And so that's why they pay pretty close attention to the stocking rate is because that's a trend that they can identify uh, whether the the ecosystem as a whole is is losing ground or whether it's maintaining. If a producer is allotted for 2,000 cows and they run 2,000 cows for 10 years, and then the next year they run eighteen, and then the next year they run fifteen, and then the next year they run twelve. That just throws up a red flag that that says, you know, we're we're going backwards. We're we're eliminating some grass species. Something that we're doing is is causing us to produce less grass than we were at one point.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so there's there's definitely been some confrontations between producers and the the forest service specifically um with that and it it's just a trend that the forest service has identified uh as a red flag something that they definitely need to watch because if they're continually turning out fewer and fewer cattle it's a likelihood that they're losing you're losing some forage all along the way
0: Mm -hmm. but from uh grazing to improve you know where with calculated rest in certain growing seasons i mean are they pretty easy for to work with on that
1: yeah so there's annual meetings um and so in the annual meeting you can bring up any of those concerns and so we attend all of our annual meetings and they have, uh, I'm trying to think of the acronym they use. Annual operating. I want to say AOM, but I can't think of what the M would stand for. Uh, anyways, we, you go over a plan. You go over a, a rotation schedule as to which pasture you plan on using at which point in the year mm-hmm. and whether you'd like to rest the pasture. But so long as you. As long as you do that in an upfront uh, manner, you know, where you keep the Forest Service in the loop and say, hey, we're we're going to change the rotation of this specific allotment where we we're going to graze uh, pasture A and then C and then B instead of A, B, and C uh, in order to rest a certain pasture during the growing season. Um, they're pretty open-minded to those kind of ideas. Uh, They also recommend that you personally uh, take some pictures from the same viewpoint every year Mm -hmm. uh, to show, you know, volume of grass, grass at a certain stage in its growing cycle, you know, different things like that um, for your own personal protection, you know, just to show, you know, we have pictures from this viewpoint for the last, 15, seventeen years uh, you know you can see that we're we're not losing plant species we're not uh, we're not harming anything you know there's a constant battle there uh to make sure that we're leaving enough grazing for the wildlife species and we're not uh, you know we're not impacting any endangered species or anything like that yeah. because that's something that the the federal the federal managers can definitely get in. Uh, a lot of problems for so I think as a as a general rule with few exceptions so long as you go into go into those meetings with the mindset that we're we're here to improve the grass we're here to improve the grazing situation uh, we're willing to take a voluntary 10% cut on numbers during drought years or, or or something to that effect uh, they're pretty accepting of it. Uh, for instance, during some of our, uh, annual meetings last year dealing with the Forest Service, we took a voluntary 20% cut mm-hmm. on some of our allotments, uh, just to show that we're, you know, which most, most producers were destocked. And so we didn't need that additional 20% anyways, but that was in an effort to show the Forest Service, hey, we're, we're aware of the situation. We're aware that we might have a deficit this year um, in terms of grass. We're going to voluntarily put 20% less there than we normally did. You know, this is not a permanent situation. We hope to leave the same residual feed that we normally do.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, they base a lot of their decisions based off of pasture usage, double height, uh, total utilization. You know, they want, they want you to, managed to a point where you're, you're leaving behind approximately the same amount of residual feed as you would have the year before, regardless of, uh, you know, whether it's a drought or an extremely wet year, um, you can, you can adjust accordingly.
0: I see. Sounds good. Well, I'm just curious and wanted to,
1: you know, make sure
0: I had it, had
1: it right. Well, you, know, you are definitely on the right track. There's, there's definitely a a conflict there and there's been some pretty bad situations where a producer has for whatever reason, not used the permit for several years, unaware that uh, the forest service had the, had the right to declare that that was non-use. And so there's definitely some, there's definitely some conflict there, but as a general rule, uh, you can, you can fluctuate numbers uh, and so long as the communication is there, you know, and you, you keep your, your range con in the loop mm-hmm. as far as why there's, there's good opportunity there to, to rest, rest pastures or, or change the rotation in order to try and improve the grazing.
0: Cool. Communication is key, I guess.
1: Absolutely. I think that's what most problems come down to.
0: Yep. I agree. Well, um, anything else you want to talk about? Questions, concerns,
1: anything? Let Let's talk about your operation a little. We've talked a lot about me. I, I'd like to hear a little bit of the direction you're going. Well, I'm uh, in
0: the experimenting phase, but uh, I have like tried to control a bunch of chaotic messes, which is uh, <laughs> so I've got a little bit of. Everything and and use my direct marketing business to, uh, from a calling standpoint, and color, horns, etc. So I'm trying to find or work on a cow that finishes on fescue with very little inputs in a hot, humid environment. So, Absolutely. So. Oh, go ahead.
1: What what breeds or breeds are you finding work are working the best today?
0: Um, I I'm young into the Coreyennies. I really enjoy an, a a deep bodied Coreyenny cow. Uh, Absolutely. Um, been using South Pole. Um, I've got a little bit of everything that's half Coriani. So my replacement females coming up this year. Um, I mean, I've got Charley cross a couple, Hereford cross a couple, there's two. Well, cross, um, a few beef master cross Angus cross and then South pole cross, um, awesome. that I will be exposing back to, uh, South pole bulls. And I've been, Using some some early slicking Murray Gray bulls,
1: so um, I've been very intrigued by the Murray gray breed in the past. It seems like they have a lot of, a lot of benefits to that breed is your experience been pretty good with them. Uh, if you want to turn your
0: your entire calf crop gray uh, <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter if the cow has, is a red red with spots, it'll have, it'll be gray on them. It'll be a solid gray. Um, I'll be the only ones that I've get any white out of are like, you know, those Longhorn cross that are you know linebacks or you know skunk tails.
1: Yeah, but yep. that that trait seems to stick along for stick around for a long time.
0: Yep. So the those few individuals are repl- you know are came out as heifers, but uh, you know, if it was a steer, it would just you know roll into to. Uh, my meat business, or I do sell quite a few of my own home raised steers to other people's meat businesses. And then where I focus on, um, pushing my cows harder, pulling, you know, pulling the inputs. And then, so I use a lot of, uh, two, three, four, five-year-olds in my meat business.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that, if there's an opportune time for for a cow to fall out of the commercial cow herd, my viewpoint is I'd just assume she fall out fell out excuse me as a yearling or a two year old where she still has the opportunity to create a very high value carcass.
0: Yeah. Yep. And uh, so, like my breed back as a whole, you know, is probably closer to seventy percent. So okay. So seeing quite a bit of fallout but i'm running a predominantly angus-based herd um you know and breeding and i've been pushing my uh calving date back so i actually turn out june 15th as well but it's uh i'm thinking about going further back to try to maybe start calving april 15th
1: somewhere right there yeah i I've definitely considered going back a little bit further myself, and it wouldn't surprise me if, in years to come I do um but that's hard thing for a commercial guy to do to to voluntarily have fewer days of age on your calf come November first, you know or, or whenever it, you you wean typically but uh every time I've pushed my cabin date back, i've been happy with the results, so i'm I'm kind of I'm, I'm tipping the scale right now as to whether I move everything back just a little bit further or, yep. or keep it where it is.
0: Yep. Well, after listening to you talk earlier, I think I've decided I'm going to push back and shorten it up by 15 days. So uh, the, short,
1: the shortening it up is what drastically made a big difference for me. Um, what, what a lot of people don't realize is by shortening it up, you do not affect your good cows in any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. Those those cows that, that, let's say you were turning your bulls in June 1st, and now you turn your bulls in June 15th. If you have a cow that cycles, uh, let's say, for instance, June 5th, and so she cycles before you put bulls out, that cow, those early cycling cows that have inherent fertility, those cows will cycle back again. That you'll catch that cow in the first cycle after June 15th. She'll come back in 21 days after the 5th. She'll be the 26th. You'll you you'll catch her right in the first cycle again like you normally would have.
2: Mm-hmm. The
1: only cows that, that that truly affects by shortening the backside are those cows that have already had two opportunities to breed and for whatever reason haven't cycled or haven't caught.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and so that's where I think a lot of people really get hung up on. Well, I don't want to make... I don't wanna hurt my good cows. I don't wanna miss my good cows with cycled right at the beginning earlier. And I tell them you you don't lose any of those cows. Those cows stay in. The only thing that you eliminate are the cows that would eventually eliminate themselves anyway. Yeah.
0: The the second or the third, fourth cycles.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Yeah, so I'm definitely gonna shorten it up. Um But thinking about pushing it back because when we start our grass breaks, like I was grazing again March twentieth, I think this year, and Mm -hmm. and but I'm grazing spring a spring flush, so you know two two moves a day, sometimes four, and that's caused a lot of issues that i haven't seen in the past but i think are directly related to moving so one of my issues is uh i have my baby calves you know are getting pink eye and i think that's a stress stress induced and i'm not sure and i'm not i can't i'm not sure if it is but that's kind of what i'm thinking
1: yeah yeah it it easily could be you know if they have a weakened immune system and then Especially if it's if it's a viral strain of pink eye, mm-hmm. it it most definitely could be be having an uh, adverse effect on them. No, no doubt about it.
0: Yeah. So it would by pushing it back to the fifteenth of April, I would have two three weeks of really fast moves out of the way, and then as we start into calving, you know, we'll, I'll be slowing down to to some more grass and I might even push it back to uh, a little further April 20th or so in that way, you know, the, a lot of the really, really short, fast moves are out of the way for sure. That would cover mm. me on, but then I'm, you know, into a, a July breeding
1: yeah, yeah. And that
0: humid with flies. That's
1: part of my concern. Um, I don't necessarily want to calve as early as I do, but I don't want to breed any later than I do. Yeah. Uh, you know, if I'm exposing my cows June 1st through July 15th, a lot of times in this area, the the protein in our grass and the the palatability and the total feed value really drops off after July 15th and and really a lot of times by July 1st, mm-hmm. um, you know, and so if, if we want those cows on an upward nutritional plane during the breeding season, I feel like after July 15th, I, I really can't guarantee that,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, you know, I, I feel like they're kind of maintaining body condition at best, especially, you know, that calf is increasing in size Um, you know, pulling on that cow a little bit more all the time. And so that's a a big factor for me um, as far as my breeding season by not going any later is uh, trying to avoid, like you say, going into that extremely hot, dry, you know, we don't have the humidity here like you guys do, but I'm trying to eliminate that hot, dry uh, portion of the breeding cycle.
0: Yeah, and that's, we would have, uh you know fescue base which is a cool season heavy endophyte causes a lot uh, the cow to have a decreased ability to regulate her body temperature So uh,
1: i've heard a little bit about fescue toxicity but i'm not extremely familiar with it i know that it's a huge problem for you guys back there
0: yeah so it basically constricts the blood flow so uh and the blood vessels, right, and so blood flow and heat dissipation is greatly decreased. Um, I, but we're also Missouri, where I'm at, is you know, I think by nature more of a warm season environment. So right. as I switch up grazing management, um, I'm seeing a lot more warm season plants natives even just kind of some annuals start expressing themselves so yeah. i stay greener longer and uh you know when the fescue slump starts happening i see summer type grasses come on and uh and i think that's been a game changer for what i'm able to do
1: absolutely yeah you you're increasing your diversity in your species, but, you know, through, through your grazing practices. And that's, that makes a huge difference. You know, if those cattle don't have to eat fescue during that time, I'm sure, or it's not their complete diet. I'm sure that makes a big difference.
0: Yeah, it does. Well,
1: I I really, I really appreciate the opportunity to be on here, August. I I really, I really appreciate what you're doing and, and I admire your program and, and what you're doing, especially your, direct to consumer business. I think that's an excellent, excellent business to be in in today's day and age.
0: Yeah. Thank you. It allow, it definitely, uh, allows me to make, uh, drastic changes and big mistakes and, uh, uh, not have the, I guess, initial hit of, you know, going straight to a barn.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it uh, gives you a little more flexibility to where you can experiment and, and find what truly works.
0: Yeah, Yep. But no, I appreciate you taking the time. Um, I, you know, learned a bunch, uh, and, uh, i definitely once your trademark goes through, we need to get back on and you with a big announcement and, uh, we can, uh, talk about, you know, where you're going further and, and things like that
1: absolutely i'd I'd be happy to whenever you'd have me
0: sounds good well if you wanna tell us uh your name again uh where they can find you how they can get a hold of you
1: yeah it's court court pugly in extreme northwestern utah uh faith cross livestock on uh instagram or facebook or uh court pugly on facebook as well
0: cool well i really appreciate it and uh Thanks for taking the time. I know it's a time commitment, but hopefully, hopefully, it's you got some time left to get a few other things done today.
1: Absolutely, thoroughly enjoyed it. So thanks a bunch, August. I, I really appreciate it.
0: Yep, thank you. We'll talk at you, yeah, later.
1: We'll you later. Bye.